Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Kyle Neiman, if you didn't know that. I'm the uh, student pastor here, uh, lead 7th through 12th grade. Love uh, having the opportunity to lead those students in uh, week in and week out. And uh, it's just an absolute blessing uh, to serve uh, this church in that way. Um, but I love these opportunities to be able to uh, talk uh, to all of y'all on Sunday mornings. It's just my heart to share uh, God's word with all of you. Um, before we get started uh, this morning, um, just want to uh, remind y'all about the service of remembrance that we have on December 8th. Um, so me and my family, uh, or Maddie and I, and, and now Walt, we, we have two Thanksgivings we go to on Thanksgiving Day. Um, we have my, my side of the family um, that we go to at around noon, and her side of the family, they have their meal around three. Those are very close together, very large meals. That did not stop me from getting seconds at both of them. Um, so... Not too ashamed to me, uh, mention that. But um, I bring up the service of remembrance because there's not a year that goes by that we hit the holiday season and um, I don't think uh, about the, the people that aren't with us. I, I always have them on my mind, my, my grandparents and um, uh, how much I miss them. And their memory is always fresh on my mind anytime around the, the holidays. Um, and telling stories uh, about them and, and traditions and things like that. And the service of remembrance, if you don't know what it is, it's a service in which we um, recite or we, we read the names of people who you have requested to be remembered. Uh, there's a card in your bulletin that you can fill out and write down a name to be read at that service. And it's a wonderful service of worship, um, of hope, and healing. Uh, it's put together by Randy and our, our Stephen ministry, and it's just absolutely a fantastic service. I really encourage you to be a part of it. If, you, um, if you've never been to one, uh, it, it really is a very hope-filled service, very special service. So um, I wouldn't miss it. Um, and so rather than just filling out the card and putting names and turning it in, really encourage you to consider being a part of that service. Um, last week, Pastor Randy effectively ended the uh, All the World's a Stage sermon series. Uh, but when Bart and I discussed me preaching this week, I told him, hey, can I keep preaching on that sermon series? <laughs> and he was like, okay, so we're keeping it going. Uh, just one more week. Uh, we have a new sermon series coming up next week. Um, but um, I really wanted to approach one more angle of this topic of hypocrisy and dishonesty uh, before we moved on. Uh, when we started planning this series, Bart um, was trying to think of, of how to best present a series on hypocrisy and dishonesty. And as we were brainstorming, I couldn't get this quote out of my head that all the world's a stage. It's from uh, Shakespeare's um, play, As You Like It. And uh, as a kid, um, I really liked Shakespeare. Yes, I said as a kid. Like when I was in fifth and sixth grade, I had a weird obsession with Shakespeare. Uh, my parents even gifted me with the complete works of Shakespeare, um, you know, as, you know, like a, like a sixth grader. Um, I would go to the library at school and check out um, books um, either about Shakespeare or like uh, the plays, although they didn't have like the actual plays. I had to get like children's paraphrases of the plays, but it helped me understand all these characters. And I loved the monologues. I loved the stories and the characters. I, I just uh, really enjoyed uh, Shakespeare's writing and his creativity. Um, and this, this monologue where this quote comes from is uh, one of the most famous uh, monologues that, that Shakespeare ever wrote. Um, and in the monologue, there's a character, his name's Jaques. And Jaques, he is, uh, basically has this opportunity to, to share basically what he thinks about life. And um, so he proceeds to do something that Shakespeare does often in his writing, and that's breaking down the fourth wall and playing these games with the audience. And so what he does is he's, he is using the actors on stage performing a play to tell the audience that they themselves are performing a play in life. It's one of those mind-bending, kind of uh, breaking down the fourth wall things that Shakespeare loved to do. And so as this character goes on and, and gives this monologue, he says, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. And, and saying that we're all participating in this grand play that's going on. He proceeds to, um, to go over what he calls the seven ages of man. These different roles that a man plays in his life from, from childbirth to death. 
whether he, he begins his life like everybody else, he, he grows up like a schoolboy like everybody else and does all these different things. He goes through a midlife crisis all the way to death. And so that's what's described in the monologue. And I remember uh, when I first kind of understood what this monologue was about, and, and I mean, I was in fifth grade, the prose and, and, and sentence structure was a little bit difficult <laughs> sometimes in Shakespeare. But when I first understood what this was all about, what it made me feel was, I don't want to fit into those different roles. Like, I don't want to just be what, um, what this character says that all men are. I want to be something different. And so even in my attempts to, to fulfill different roles with my life, ultimately what ends up happening is um, I claim different roles and everything becomes um, about this performance in life. Shakespeare couldn't be more right that we are all players on a stage. Ultimately, we treat this stage of life as a performance in which we are willing to do anything to upstage others and get the most spotlight. When... Um, I was in high school, um, I was very much into theater, and, and theater uh, people are funny, and I can say that because I was one, um, but, it, but it's true, there, there's uh, a little bit like funniness to how theater people think, especially in high school, and, and here's what I mean. In working in student ministry, one of the things that I've really discovered is during that like ninth to 11th grade period, something is happening inside the... Um, psychological makeup of a teenager. They're really beginning to discover their identity. And and it moves from um, identifying themselves with activities or or what they like and they dislike. Because when they're younger, a a child or a teenager, they identify like, I'm an athlete because I play sports. Or I'm, uh, you know, I am going to be a scientist because I like science, or they kind of identify with the things they like. But when you hit that kind of ninth through 11th grade, it's different for, for different teenagers, but around there, they begin looking in the mirror, and what, the, what teenagers say to themselves is, who is that? Like, there's this big question of who. Who am I looking at in the mirror? They, it's, it's a deeper, more internal um, anxiety with identity that, that teenagers face. And, and, uh, and so one of the reasons I love doing what I do is I get to walk students through that a little bit and, and teach them to find their identity in Christ and not in the things that this world suggests. And so one of the things that's so, um, so interesting about high school theater It's because right smack dab in the middle of this identity crisis that students are trying to figure out who they are. They have directors and teachers saying, I want you to be the best at being something completely opposite of who you are. Like, I want you to be very, very good at masking your identity, at creating a new identity. And, and, and so what happens is in um, auditions and rehearsals and performances, there's this constant trying to craft identity better than anybody else can craft identity. And what happens um, that I've seen over and over again w- when I was in high school and, and seen since in my, my 12 years working in student ministry and, and watching the, the theater kids, because I love them, they're, they're awesome, um, but watching the theater kids and, and just seeing them go through this is what happens is they, that bleeds into life. It becomes how they begin crafting their own identity. And what happens is they try to perform in order to get the applause. And and so I I tell the students this story pretty often. There was a time when I was um, uh, driving the car with a girl I was dating at the time in in high school. And she just said, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. You act like this around these friends. You act like this around these friends. You act like this around me and this around your family. Who are you? And I realized that that stemmed from me just trying to perform, trying to put up, um, really to be all things to all people. And that's a role that only Christ can fulfill. The thing is, uh, when, when I hit my senior year, things started clicking for me. I realized that I didn't want to do this performance dance anymore. I started really living for Christ. and I, I loved the transformation that took place my senior year of high school. Um, and even with that, and even with me starting to understand that concept that success was not defined by the significance of my performance, even with that, I still, when moving to embracing new groups of friends or new situations, found myself performing 
And it's what we do. We, we put out this performance so that we can receive the most applause. See, in this series, Bart and Randy have discussed this idea of hypocrisy and the symptoms that are a result of our dishonesty. Um, we, we've talked about how we should avoid a Pharisee-like pride. We need to uh, have a need for confession. We need to escape from our shame, and uh, there's a necessity for quality relationships. We've worked through all these things, and it's true. Hypocrisy truly does the opposite of those things. Dishonesty does the opposite of those things. It, it boosts our pride. It, it holds back our confession. It burdens us with shame and isolates us from others. And, and we've learned all this over the past several weeks, and, and yet we will, we will continue, because of our human nature, we'll continue to fall and feel like even the knowledge of these things even brings more hypocrisy into our lives. It's difficult. Because the thing is, none of us want to be hypocritical. Like, none none of us want to live hypocritical lives. That's not fun. Like, no one desires to to be two-faced. And likewise, the world doesn't want that from Christians. But that's the generalized view that's placed on Christianity, that the church is just filled with hypocrites. And, and the, I, I truly believe the world doesn't want that from us. They, I, I think everybody can agree the world would benefit from a church that is mobilized together and, and is not about um, faking anything and just embracing the world and loving the world and, and making the world better for the sake of Christ. So none of us want to be labeled as hypocritical. None of us want to feel hypocritical. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at two questions. And the first question is, how does God redeem our hypocrisy for his glory? Meaning, how do, how do we see that evidenced in our lives? How do we, um, h- how do we experience the, the reconciliation of, of God redeeming our hypocrisy for his glory. And the second thing is, how do we reconcile our hypocrisy with others, meaning those who don't know Christ? How can we uh, change that label that's placed on the church so that they don't sense that we're always just two-faced, just saying one thing but doing another? How do we change that? How do we flip the script on that? So we're going to begin with the first one. But first, uh, I just want to spend just a little moment in prayer uh, before we move into this. I think it's really important that we approach a topic like this in prayer. So I ask you to bow your heads. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we ask that you would make your presence known to us, that you would reveal your will to us through your holy word. Pray for open hearts this morning, God. As we speak about hypocrisy, we would put aside our pride. Pray against the spirit of pride this morning, God, that, that can so easily puff us up and make us defensive in our hearts. Again, I pray that you would break us of that. Lord, we submit to you this morning. Guide us, inform us, shape us as we desire to be more like you. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, so along with Shakespeare, um, I, as a kid, I really liked uh, video games. I still like video games. I like uh, video games a, a whole lot. I've been playing them for a very long time, ever since uh, my parents got me and my brothers the Nintendo Entertainment System, the big gray box, where if the games weren't working right, you had to blow the dust out of them or whatever. That, those were the days. Um, and so... <laughs> my my dad's here today. He always sa- says, the second they added more buttons to the controller, I was out. Um, and so uh, <laughs> I always love that. Um, so I love video games, but one thing in my years of playing video games that has never changed is that I will always blame the game when something goes wrong. I will never blame myself. <laughs> so basically, uh, so taking something like, like Mario or something like that, I'm running across the screen, I have a jump to make, and if I miss it, I'll blame the game. Like, I, I totally hit that. Like, there's no reason for that to happen. Like, how could that possibly happen? If you have uh, teenage sons, you know this, parents because you hear it from the other side of your house. Like, like something bad happens to them in the game, it is a violent yell uh, from across the house. And just know it's the game's fault, okay? Um, another, another example that I like to use is, um, I love playing ping pong. 
And when I, when I play ping pong, uh, when I'm really getting into a match with a friend, um, there'll inevitably be a time where I miss a shot, like completely whiff on it. And I don't say, oh, silly me, I missed that shot. You know what I do? I look at the paddle. <laughs> I, I do it almost out of instinct. I look at the paddle as if the paddle has some sort of mysterious hole that opened up to make me miss that shot. Like, I don't know why I do it. It's the same reason, though, that when you're walking down the street, you trip and you immediately look around. Like, that wasn't my fault. Like, you know, I hope no one was looking. Like, we do this where, where we can't believe and we don't want to portray that we could possibly do anything wrong. The thing about the ping pong paddle is it is static. It is not changing. I'm the variable. The same, same thing with a video game. It's, it's digital, it's static, we're the variables. And yet, as humanity, we do this thing where we, we shift blame and we can't possibly believe that we would, we would be at fault for something. But from the moment sin entered the world, humanity has been trying and failing to be God's. It's what we do in a, a sense that we're trying to grasp control of situations. We're trying to grab the reins of our own spiritual well-being. If we can just do enough, if we can just uh, keep things in line, then everything will be okay. Anything that goes wrong, it's somebody else's or something else's fault. And we do that. This incredible desire for control in us. And it, this creates this, this atmosphere of hypocrisy in the church because what we end up doing in a desire for control over our lives is we, we cut corners and we, we do things that are not necessarily to the will of God um, in order to find success, to be promoted as better in the eyes of God. But then we walk into the church, um, and I say we because I've been guilty of this, we walk into the church and we just hope that, that we can do enough to tilt the scales into our favor so that God will ignore any other things that we've done wrong. And it's this broken system of religion that we've, and it's a lie that we've believed when ultimately the only thing that sets us free and the only thing that forgives us is Jesus Christ. And, and there's no way we can possibly tilt the scales into our favor. Today we're going to be taking a look in a couple different areas in Romans, uh, specifically starting at the end of chapter 5. And the verses are going to be up on the screen. But here Paul is wrapping up a point in, in which he's um, telling people that even though we were condemned by the actions of one man, Adam, we are in turn saved by the actions of one man, Jesus. And this points to this freedom we find in Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 18 of chapter 5. It says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now listen carefully to this next part. It says this in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there's this traditional Jewish understanding of why the law was brought in uh, by God, why God gave us the law. And, the, and it was especially prevalent during this time and, and with the um, the. Jewish sect of the, the Pharisees, but this idea that the law was given to man to counteract the sinful human impulses, that it was a way to buffer um, uh, our impulses, to keep us away from those things, to separate us from those things. And it does act that way, but Paul is introducing something um, that's significantly different. He says um, that the law came in to increase the trespass not to decrease the transgressions, to increase the trespass. That's hard to wrap our minds around, that God would give us the law knowing that we would sin more. Knowing that our sin would be more evident, not that we would sin more, that our sin would be more evident. Uh, and so here's, here's an example. Um, when I graduated high school, the last day of school, me and my friend Jared uh, had this plan. We were going to go for a walk. 
Um, and not just, hey, let's go around the, you know, the block or you know, walk over to somebody's house. No, we were going to point in a direction and start walking. And that's what we did. Immediately after it was early dismissal, immediately after school, came over to my house. We made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, put two bottles of water in our backpacks, and we uh, pointed in a direction. Now, um, I, uh, we went to Fossil Ridge High School, um, so you can kind of get an idea for where we're going. We pointed kind of towards Keller, and we just walked. And here were our rules. We don't stop walking until we can walk no more. Um, and if we come up to a barrier, we have to go around it and uh, get in the general direction, get back in the general direction. So lots of crazy adventures happened. I saved Jared's life from almost being hit by a train. That was fun. Uh, completely different story. Uh, he was looking at like a dead animal on the tracks and didn't see a train coming. He, he almost died. Um, but I saved him. I'm a hero. <laughs> um, but ultimately, we started, we, we had walked all the way, um, you know, other side of 377, um, we, we'd walked quite a ways into Keller, and uh, now we had gotten to an area where there was a fence. It was a barbed wire fence. It was probably about that high or something like that. Um, and we looked at it, and we thought about our rules. Keep walking this way. If there's a barrier, go around it. We look at the fence. Is that really a barrier? No. Uh, so we climbed over the fence and we just kept going. We were more interested in staying in a straight line. So we started walking and kept on walking. It was uh, deeper grass and some wooded area and it was a lot of fun, really hilly and stuff like that. We're, we're, a lot of adventure feeling. And then we started seeing some animals. We started seeing some cows and some uh, goats and stuff like that. And then it became really evident to us that this is not just somebody else's land. This is somebody else's active land. Like, they are doing something on this land. And around that time, we saw a truck driving on a dirt road in the property. And so one thing would be to do is like, hey, sorry about that. We shouldn't have, we shouldn't have entered here. So we are bad. But we chose the other option, which is hide. Um, and so we jumped in uh, to uh, kind of a more wooded area. and We hid and we kind of watched the truck drive away. Now, why did we hide? It's the same reason that Adam and Eve hid in the Garden of Eden, because they knew that they had trespassed. Like, we knew we had crossed a barbed wire fence. You don't make fences with sharp, pointy things if you want people to go past them. So we knew we had trespassed. When we saw, saw the guy driving, we immediately avoided him. And so we hid so here's what Paul is saying. God gave us the law to increase the trespass. Not to, to make life harder for us. Not at all. But instead, what he's doing with the law is allowing us to realize our depravity. No longer can we plead ignorance. The law is in place to act as a mirror to show us our sinfulness. We are now willfully trespassing when we sin. Not foolishly, ignorantly bumbling around. We are willfully trespassing because we have the law. And by just the amazing love of God, when sin increased, grace abounded all the more, is what this verse says. How amazing is that? But there's a, a reaction to this amazing gift from God. And here's what, what happens here. Because God gives this abundant grace, that means from an external point of view, hypocrisy becomes this inevitable byproduct of Christianity. Because if you never sinned, then you would have no need for the law to reveal anything for you, and you would have no need for Jesus. But instead, the law points out that we've sinned and describes our need for Jesus. It shows us how desperately we need Jesus in our life. And so we need the law, but what that means is there will be a time where we existed apart from the law. Exist, existed in sinfulness and, and existed ignoring everything to do with the law. And because of that, when we have this moment of transformation, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and we become a new creation, that is an amazing internal transformation, but that does not change what people have always known about us. Before you knew 
Christ, people knew you as something different. They didn't experience the transformation you did. So to them, the whole concept of Christianity, the concept of the gospel transforming us, makes us look like hypocrites. It just does that by result. Hypocrisy is the result of the collision of a fallen people with the abundant grace of God. There would be no, no one would think you were a hypocrite if your entire life you lived in sin. They'd think that's just who you are. That's how you identify. But because you have been changed, labeled as a hypocrite. It's a tough thing to get our minds around And because of this uh, internal struggle that we continue to battle our flesh, we're going to continue to succeed and fail to produce righteousness in our lives and continually promote this idea of hypocrisy because that is what we're attempting to do is just pursue Christ and our failures promote hypocrisy. I'm currently attending uh, classes at UNT, almost done, by the way. I had two credit hours left, I wanted them to just take those away. They wouldn't do that. Um, and so they made me take one more class this, this semester. So only one more class and I get to graduate. <laughs> so incredibly excited. Um, but this class, um, or this, this opportunity to attend classes at UNT has been uh, awesome for sharing the gospel. I've had dozens and dozens of conversations with people about Christ. And um, it's been uh, a great opportunity for me and a great, hopefully a great opportunity for them to, to learn a little more as well. I'm getting an art degree, and so you can imagine the amount of wonderful opinions about religion there are in the art department. It's, it's fantastic. Um, but one of the things I get more often than anything are people who, who give a response kind of along these lines. I don't think I could ever believe in Jesus because there's just so much hypocrisy in Christians. And you've probably heard that too. You've probably seen that on Facebook. You may have heard somebody say that to your face or anywhere in between. Um, We we sense that a little bit, that people just, the only reason that they're being held back from Jesus is because of us. And it it hurts. It makes us feel shame. Bart talked about shame and and dealing with that um, a couple weeks ago. And and there's, we need to embrace freedom in Christ. But here's what I tell uh, my fellow students when they, when they say something like that to me. They say, you know, I can't believe in Jesus because of the hypocrisy of Christians. And I just say, that's the point. Like, that's, that's the point of the gospel. We're, we're hypocrites because we're pursuing righteousness. We wouldn't be hypocrites at all if we just stayed the same. We wouldn't be experiencing this transformation if we just stayed the same. And in the same way, if we weren't open about our brokenness, and we'll get to this in a second, if we weren't open about our brokenness and we just tried to portray ourselves as you know, jolly all the time and there was nothing wrong, then they would n- never see the transformation. They would never see how God is just working in us and changing us. So we desperately need Jesus Every time we try to define our character by the pursuit of selfish desires, we prove this point all the more. So praise God that his grace reigns within his children because of the righteous act of Jesus on the cross. Paul is, of course, quick to point out that just because we have this freedom and grace doesn't mean that we should just sin like crazy or anything like that. He points out in Romans 6, 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who who died to sin still live in it? So the struggle continues. We're going to continue to battle the flesh in our lives as long as we are on this earth earth, but there is this motivation to realize that, that grace, the grace of God has transformed us and has changed our, our point of view on life. And because of that, we are dead. Um, we have died to ourselves. We are a new creation. Why would we still live in sin? I use the illustration all the time that when we continue to live in sin, even though Christ has put it to death in our lives, it's like a prisoner who has been set free, completely pardoned, and says, hey, can I keep these handcuffs on? That's what we do. Just handcuffed by sin when we choose to run to it. 
So every day we face this challenge, this struggle. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says it really clear. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So if we're going to overcome the hypocrisy in our own lives and this view of hypocrisy in our own lives, we have to die to ourselves daily. We have to daily take up our cross. I, I cannot imagine what was going through the minds of the people who heard Jesus say this. Because for us, the, the cross is a thing we wear, wear on our necks and we put up on walls and, and things like that. Uh, there's crosses everywhere. But, but during these times, the, the cross was a brutal, violent execution. For a lot of cultures o- around the world, the cross is a symbol of, of, of hate because of things like the, the Crusades. I mean, you have to think what was going through their mind when they heard this. Take up your cross daily. Take up this instrument of death daily. Jesus is saying, listen, it is a burden to die to yourself every day. You have to carry this burden with you, putting to death on your sin and follow me. Jesus puts to death our sin, and we have to submit to that every day. So when you wake up in the morning, choosing to submit to Christ. So it's really helpful if we're going to die to ourselves daily to have that knowledge that um, hypocrisy just happens um, as a result of the struggle. But even more helpful is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. I love this verse because it sets us free. It really does. If you, can you imagine the, the weight that would be on our shoulders, the burden that would be on our shoulders if we were responsible for doing enough to accomplish our grace? Like that, that would be such a weight on us, and yet Paul's writing here. You don't need to worry about doing enough. It's not about the works you do. It's about your heart. Jesus has done the work. Jesus has done the work. When, I'm t- telling, when I tell students about um, their faith in Christ and explaining salvation or explaining baptism, I like to use this, this um, illustration of a, of a scale of one to ten, where ten is, is God and one is like Satan, evil, awful. And I, and I always say, think of one amazing person, like the best person you can possibly think of. And so depending on who I'm talking about or talking to, they might say, you know, Mother Teresa or my parents or, or whoever. I'll say, okay, on this scale, you know, 10 to, to 1, where your parents lie or where does Mother Teresa lie? Uh, right here, you know, 7, 8. And I'll say, okay, who's the worst person you can possibly think of? I think I've done this, you know, probably 100 times and almost every time the answer is Hitler. I'm like, oh, good, I'm glad you recognize he, he's an awful man. Um, <laughs> And so, so I'm like, okay, so uh, where would he be on the scale? Like, right here. I'm like, okay, good. And then w- we shift. I say, okay, where are you on the scale? And they look, and they, they think about it. And depending on their, their self-esteem, their view of themselves, they might put them like a little under their parents or, you know, a li- little like around five or so. They put themselves on the scale. And then I'll ask them, what can you do to get from your spot to that 10. Every time I've asked that, I've gotten the same answer. Nothing. Something about seeing it on the scale and seeing God next to 10, you're like, yep, nothing I can do. But what if I asked, okay, hey, um, what can you do to get from where you are to your parents or, or to Mother Teresa or something like that? There, there's going to be a slew of things that we can think about doing to be more like people. But there's nothing we can do to be more like God apart from surrendering our life to Christ. So we have to die to ourselves and realize this free gift of grace is not uh, on our doing, it's, it's God. We need to surrender to that if we're going to overcome the hypocrisy in our lives. The second way we overcome hypocrisy in our lives is to embrace the responsibility we have in the kingdom of God. Um, Romans 6, 11 through 14 says this, uh, so you all also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments from, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. We have to embrace this responsibility. I think this verse comes with a heavy responsibility in it as it tells us that we and our brothers and sisters in Christ need to be instruments for God, for his righteousness, for this right standing in the world. This means two parts. It means, one, that we are pursuing righteousness personally, that we're pursuing a life of righteousness, but it also means that we are displaying righteousness for others and leading them to that. Like, it's so incredibly important that we model this and extend it. What do we say here at EBC? Extending God's kingdom. It's one of our core values, one of the things that we want to do to glorify God by extending God's kingdom, loving God continually, and connecting with one another. This extending God's kingdom, we do that by by portraying the righteousness of God wherever we go. It's our responsibility. So we have to do that, and we have to keep one another accountable in this. If we do these things, if we die to ourselves daily, and if we um, overcome hypocrisy by embracing our responsibility to the kingdom of God, it really helps diminish this idea of hypocrisy that weighs us down. Because now our eyes are pointed forward or towards the goal. The upward call of Christ, those are the things that we are focused on, and it takes our eyes off of worrying about, am I, am I doing better on this scale? We, we overcome that. So if those are the things we need to do to overcome this personally, those two things don't really help us externally with people who don't know Christ. If somebody you know, says, why shouldn't I think you're a hypocrite? You can't really say, well, I die to myself daily, and I embrace my role and responsibility in the kingdom of God. They're going to go, what does that mean? That's a really internal aspect of your relationship with Christ and you overcoming these things uh, mentally and spiritually. So what do we do? How do we possibly um, interact with other people and help diminish this stigma of uh, of hypocrisy that's on um, us as a culture of believers? We can do this personally and how we interact with other people who don't know Christ. Um, I'm going to give you three ways for that as we wrap up today. The first thing is that we have to have honesty in our brokenness. There has to be honesty in our brokenness if we are going to reconcile our hypocrisy for, uh, with others. It can be so hard for us, though. Again, we're talking about all the world's a stage when we stand up. In the, what does an actor do when they're on stage? They have spotlight on them. They have makeup, um, removing blemishes, and they're performing well-recited lines. We do the exact same thing in our lives. We try to carefully craft our answers. We try to put on the best face and and try to not let anybody see the cracks in our our lives. Because if you think about it, that's how the, the world works. We th- if you think about like a sales uh, pitch or something like that, if somebody sees your brokenness and you're, you see something wrong with the person in, in the sales pitch, they're not going to buy whatever you're offering. And so that being the case, we, we as a culture just kind of try to protect ourselves, put up little barriers and walls and paint this perfect picture of who we are so people will trust us more. But Paul models this idea of openly admitting brokenness when he says, um, mentions in Philippians 3, he mentions that he was a persecutor of the church, openly admits that. He's trying to lead people, uh, trying to tell them and, and uh, encourage them in their ministry. And he's like, guess what? I was one of the guys who rounded you all up and, and tried to get y'all tried and all that stuff. It seems like that would hurt his ability to communicate with that group. But that's not it at all. Why? Because Paul is answering to a higher authority that trumps all of this. Paul says in Romans 8, 1 through 2, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. When we interact with people who don't know Christ, whether it be in person or social media or wherever, we need to be honest about our brokenness because there's no condemnation. So, uh, talking to, to someone this morning, just asking people, you know, how their Thanksgiving went, 
one person said, oh, it was great. And I was like, oh, that's good. And immediately he said, actually, it was awful. <laughs> I said, oh, man, well, tell me about it. And we talked about it, and I encouraged him and, uh, you, know, hope, you know, hope that his Christmas was better. And he said, yeah, it will be, you know, just family stuff. And, and we talked about that. In that moment, if he had just said, yeah, it was good, I would say, yeah, it was good too, and we'd walk away. But in the omission of brokenness, there is an openness for healing. That's all that we, we talked about, a uh, big part of what we talked about last week, but it's so key that for, for healing with one another, that we omit to our brokenness, but for people understanding that we are not the hypocrites that they think we are, we have to admit our brokenness. Because here's the truth. The entire world knows the same thing about everybody else in the world. We all have brokenness. Everybody knows it. We don't say it. That would be rude. (laughs) This is what's wrong with you. you We we try not to say it. Some people do. Um, (laughs) We try not to say it, but we all know this. We all know this about one another. That there's brokenness within each and every one of us. So why would we hide it? If we hide it and just glaze over it, we're just lying. And we're being dishonest in our presentation of ourselves in hopes that they might um, like us or like our God. We just sing that song, Jesus, my glory. Uh, Saying in the song, Jesus, my glory. If Jesus is all of our glory, then there's none left for us. We have to allow his glory to be reflected in how we live and not be concerned with the presentation of ourselves. Here's the next thing. There has to be honesty in our transformation. Has to be honesty in our transformation. And what transformation is, it's our story. It's what changed within you. I'll never forget there was a um, time when I was at youth group in like seventh or eighth grade and a guy got up in front of the youth group and proceeded to give his testimony, how he had uh, been into drinking and partying and drugs and and messing around with women and all this stuff and and all all of it came to the fact that he, he had accepted Christ and he is living a whole new life. And everybody got around him and he's crying and they're crying and they're hugging and encouraging. It was a beautiful moment. It was really awesome. I remember just as a young kid, really immature, thinking, man, I don't have a cool story like that. <laughs> like, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> I want my life to be awful just so it can be better again. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. We do this with our own transformation story. We, we have bought into the lie that the transformation that's taken place in our life isn't significant enough. So we don't tell people. We've, we've hidden uh, what happened in our lives to just conversations we bring up if we're leading a small group and the question's asked. Conversations that bring up if our kids are asking you know, questions about us, but we never talk about the transformation that took place in our lives. L- listen, you might not think it's significant, the transformation that took place, but Jesus took you from dead to life. That's pretty significant. And so we need to share our story of transformation. A person shouldn't just know that we go to church, but why we go to church. They shouldn't just know that we're a Christian, but why? There's so much change in that. Listen, there's, there's, an incredible amount of dishonesty in just how we in a social media culture have posted um, Christian as, uh, as part of our status. But if we continue to do that, it washes away this concept of, no, I was dead, now I'm alive. It needs to be this openness that, you know what, the reason I go to church is this. This is what God did for me. I was this and now I'm this. Do I struggle? Yes. Still admit my brokenness, but I am changed. Have honesty in our stories. Here's the last thing. We need to have honesty in our mission. Honesty in our mission. The quickest way to seem false to an inquisitive world is to hide our motives. No one likes the bait and switch. No one likes the carrot dangling in front of the horse. No one likes that. And think about it. When's when's the last time you went to a mechanic and and thought, you know what? 
I think everything's on the up and up. Like, I don't think there's any possible chance that they are lying to me about one of these things. Now listen, I'm not, if you, you are a mechanic, I'm not saying you're a liar. <laughs> I'm saying there's a stigma though. There's a stigma that there, there's always something hiding. It's a, it's a stereotype. Is it fair? No. But it's a stereotype that people fall into. And so in the same way, we as Christians have developed a stereotype that we are all about the bait and switch. Um, not criticizing other student ministries, but one of the things I try really hard not to do is just promote like a raffle night where I give away an iPad or something like that, partly because it's not my budget. Um, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, but I don't, I don't just give away free prizes hoping to get kids in the door so I can share the gospel with them. I've always been taught the, the, what you win them with is what you win them to. And so if I, if I win them uh, to Christ because I gave away a free iPad, to give away a lot of iPads to that person for them to remain in Christ. I think that that's, that's what it's all about is rewards. Now we need to be honest in our mission. There was a video that was posted online probably seven, maybe eight years ago by, uh, you may have seen it, by magician illusionist Penn Gillette of, uh, of Penn and Teller. And uh, Gillette's the, the one who talks. Uh, Penn is the, the one who talks. The other one doesn't, doesn't talk. But uh, Penn is, is well known for his foul mouth and his advocacy for atheism. And in this video, he talks about a time where there's a man who was at one of his shows, he was brought up on stage, uh, as part of it was, was hanging around after the show um, where they get autographs and they talk to the audience afterwards and stuff like that. He's hanging around. And um, when Penn came up to him, uh, the man was talking to him, thanking him for, for everything, and then handed him a, a small pocket Gideon Bible, you know, the, the one with the Psalms, Proverbs, and New Testament. He said, I, I wrote a little note in there, and uh, I just want you to know about Jesus. I, I'm, I'm proselytizing to you. And so I would love to say that at that moment, uh, Penn Jillette accepted Christ and now is no longer an atheist. But no, he's, he's still an atheist. But in this video, is like a video blog where he's recounting this. Penn Jillette, uh said something that was really profound about evangelism. And this is a quote he has here. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And in the moment I watched this video, uh, an atheist basically just preached a sermon to me. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe in everla- that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He goes on to describe it as, it's like you're looking at somebody who's about to be hit by a bus and you have a chance to save them, but you don't. We have to be honest about our mission. Not just saying, hey, there's a a cookout at church and hope you you can come, but saying, hey, I'd love for you to be around uh, my my church body. I have lots of great friends. We're we're gonna celebrate Jesus, but we're also have some good food. Nothing wrong with that. No one wants to to have this bait and switch happen to them where they're, they're lied to or deceived into getting into church. I believe people who don't know Christ desperately want to know that we have a concern for them. Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him whom they, whom have, not, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. At some point, we have to stop worrying about social awkwardness and tell people about Jesus. And I'm not saying to, to share a well-crafted image or, or something like that on Facebook. But, and I'm talking to myself here. I, I Candidly, I don't do a good enough job at reaching my, my immediate neighbors in my neighborhood. It's tough. At some po- point, I have to stop worrying about social awkwardness and just talk to them and let them know where I stand in my faith and let them know that I desperately want them to know Jesus too. We can't possibly expect for people to forgive our hypocrisy let alone feel loved if we're not willing to genuinely 
and kindly look at them and, and tell them the truth and speak with honesty. Would you bow your heads with me? With your heads bowed, I just want you to reflect on just a couple of these things. This idea of overcoming hypocrisy in our own lives, but also overcoming the stigma of hypocrisy that's placed upon us. It may seem unfair, but there's things we do to promote it. So maybe you, have a, you struggle with being honest in your brokenness. Maybe you struggle with sharing your story, being honest in your transformation, or maybe you struggle with being honest in your mission, or like me, just struggle with all three. encourage you right now as you're praying to God to ask God for the boldness that it takes to openly declare him with how you live your life. Father God, you're good to us. We don't deserve your grace, but you give it so abundantly. Your grace rescues us when we don't deserve rescue. God, we thank you that your son we accept him as our Lord and Savior. He stands as an advocate on our behalf. How we have a debt that needs to be paid and you take that debt in full. Thank you for your good, the good news, the gospel that your son died for us on the cross and how it sets us free. It sets us free from the condemnation of sin. God, we love you. We pray that you would speak greatly into our lives. Guys, we're about to sing this song. I pray that it would be a, a prayer for us as we declare that you are better, you are greater, and desperately cry out that, God, you would make our hearts believe. Because as the struggle continues to go on within our hearts, God, we need you there. We need you on those battlegrounds. We thank you for being ever present there. God, make our hearts believe. Experience your freedom, God. In your name we pray. Amen.